From the studios of KPCW in Park City, Utah, this is Cool Science Radio. Science and technology that's interesting, fun, and if we can understand it, well, so will you. I'm John Wells. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Our first guest this morning is Colleen Begg, a South African conservation ecologist. She's the managing director of the Nyasa Carnivore Project in South Africa, which facilitates a peaceful coexistence between individual people, communities of people, lions, and other carnivores. Our second guest this morning is Andy Saunders. He is an image restorer at NASA. He's been hard at work taking newly available digital scans of 50-year-old analog photos and applying painstaking care and cutting-edge enhancement techniques to create the highest quality Apollo photographs ever produced. Our third guest this morning is Najud Maranci, who is NASA's chief of the Exploration Mission Planning Office. She joins us to discuss the historic unmanned Artemis I mission that lifted off this past November 16th, traveled well beyond the moon, testing all aspects of the spacecraft and space launch system, and returned safely this past Sunday, December 11th. These two guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Lynn Ware Peak. Our next guest is Colleen Begg, a South African conservation ecologist. She has more than 30 years experience in field conservation action, community partnerships, and conservation leadership in Africa. She's the managing director of the Nyasa Carnivore Project in South Africa, which helps facilitate a peaceful coexistence between individual people communities of people, and lions and other carnivores. Colleen Begg, a big welcome to Cool Science Radio. Ah, thank you. It's wonderful to be speaking to you. And I'm actually in Mozambique, so technology is a very cool thing. And we are delighted to have you with us this morning. Maybe we can start, if you can take us through the mission of the Nyasa Carnivore Project. What's it all about? The Nyasa Carnival Project was started in 2003. Um, my husband and I traveled up Africa and wanted to make a contribution. We, we came to this incredible wilderness called Nyasa National Reserve there, now called Nyasa Special Reserve. And our mission is to find a way for people. There's 60,000 people living inside a protected area and large carnivores, particularly lions, but also leopards, spotted hyena, African wild dog, to be able to live together and thrive. And that means we have to reduce the threats to lions and we also have to reduce the costs for people. And it is an extraordinary opportunity to be able to create a landscape at the scale, it's a massive landscape of coexistence. Um, so that's, that's the focus of all our work and we have a big team here that I'm representing today. And you and two others of your senior management team attended the Conservation Peace Building's Conflict Transformation Training. What did you learn at this training? Were there any components of this training that particularly stood out for you? I think the thing that we've learned along the way and why this training was so important and for me was actually one of the most significant trainings I've actually done as well as our managers is that conservation, most of the conflict is with people, actually not with wildlife. And that if you can resolve the identity, some of the issues, the long standing issues in conservation with people being pushed off their land, people not having a voice in conservation, people bearing all the brunt of living with these 
dangerous large carnivores in a place like Nyasa, then you get conservation success. So the conservation peace building was really about learning peace building skills that often in other in other um, you know politics or I'm a South African. So during after apartheid when they had all the peace building um, and reconciliation, that that part of it has often been missed in conservation is very important. So much of our time is spent sitting under mango trees and listening. And a lot of the work that we do is built on the foundations of conservation peace building that we learned in that course. Colleen, it's interesting. You could probably take this model uh, as a metaphor for how we ought to conduct ourselves around the world with carnivores present or not, because it seems to me that the, the, the most successful point of the Nyasa Carnivore Project is this inclusivity and really listening to especially the, is the word Mozambicans, <laughs> the, the people who, the native, you know, people who live in Mozambique. So it, how, how unique do you think that is in the conservation world? I mean, I think it's becoming more and more accepted that the only way forward for conservation is to include the people who live with wildlife. Their voices matter. And one of the questions we have to keep asking ourselves is who has been excluded from these conversations? One of the problems with conservation in Africa is that it's mostly been led by expats and mostly been led by white expats and white Africans like myself. And that if we are going to be successful into the future, we have to include a lot more voices to be able to protect this wildlife. And these are the people that actually live with it. These are the people that have the solutions. They know how to live with lions. They've lived with them for hundreds of years. We have paintings here in Yasa that are thousands of years old, um, Batwa pygmy paintings. So people and lions have lived together forever. And wilderness has people in it. This idea that wilderness doesn't include people comes from a protected area sort of philosophy rather than, than an understanding of how, how Africa developed. Yes. And so what are the biggest threats to both the lions and the people? So for lions, the biggest threat um, overall is snaring. So these wire snares that are put out to catch wild meat for people, um, both for consumption, for themselves, for protein, but also for sale. And then more recently for lions, we have a major illegal wildlife trade in paws, um, teeth and, paw and claws. Um, and this has emerged since about 2015 and is actually... Um, it's probably our major worry at the moment because lions are poisoned and they're poisoned simply to take their paws and their teeth for a, an international market. And of course, a lot of other animals die like hyenas, jackals, janets, even a crocodile the other day. Um, so the ones that are related to livelihoods, so bushmeat snaring, um, we can solve. Um, it's, a, it's a poverty alleviation, food security issue that can be solved. Uh, the the tax on people by lions that can also be solved. The one that are the illegal wildlife trade are beyond our capacity as a small conservation project to be able to solve because it requires a much bigger, um, a, a, a much, much, many more people to be involved to be able to stop illegal wildlife trade um, that's international. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Colleen Begg. She's the managing director of the NASA Carnivore Project in Mozambique. So what, what you're talking about are these outside forces, maybe poachers, trophy hunters that don't share the community's ideals and 
I don't know how you uh, would go about stopping them, but you would certainly need uh, more resources than just agreement in the community. Yeah, the, um, I think I think we need to make a distinction between poaching and trophy hunting because they are completely different. Um, trophy hunting is legal in Mozambique, um, and the Mozambican government does allow trophy hunting in certain areas, and it's very well controlled um, for lions in particular. Whereas poaching is illegal, um, and it, it doesn't just take males, but it takes a wider variety of, of animals. And obviously, there are rights issues in there, like what makes something illegal and what makes something legal. Um, but I think that in terms of trophy hunting, we can engage, we can find ways to make it sustainable. With poaching, we need to make sure that there are rights for the local communities so that they can access the food and the resources that they need. And they can also help us to be able to prevent outsiders coming in and using these resources. It's complex um, and it's certainly not something that we can do alone. We have many partners, um, the Mozambican government, obviously. Um, you know, we we are we have an agreement with them to work on the large carnivores, but this is this is their heritage, this is their protected area. And um, it's really important that we work with them, tourism operators, the communities, and and social activists. Um, just just today, we have an amazing group called Still Standing, a Mozambican social activists who bring basketball to all the children in Niassa with conservation messaging. So it takes a village, it takes us all, um, and everybody makes a contribution as well as you, you know, giving me an opportunity to be able to, to talk about what we do. And Colleen, uh, do you have technology or do you have access te to technology that you use? I know you do radio marking. Uh, uh, maybe you can tell us what that is, but also do you have drones and ground-based surveillance and motion detectors, those sorts of things? We have very little technology really because we're very remote. So we lie in Northern Mozambique on the border with Tanzania. It's probably one of the most isolated, large protected areas. It's 16,000 square miles, so very remote. So getting technology fixed is, 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 is tricky. But of course, I'm speaking to you on technology, satellite Wi-Fi. We do use radio collars, satellite collars on our lions. We have 16 prides that are collared at the moment um, and that helps us send out anti-poaching teams into the areas with our partners to be able to protect them. Um, we also use obviously GPSs, um, radios to be able to communicate, Earth Ranger, which is like a software based um, on computers to be able to see where all our assets are. So we can see where the lions are, we can see we call it elephants are, we can see where our, our teams are to keep everybody safe. Um, we don't use drones. Uh, it has, it's something that's been talked about a lot, but again, one of the problems we have is that when things break here, yeah, it's almost impossible to get a tech person to come and fix them. So a lot of our work is very simple grassroots, talking to people, um, you know, on the ground conversations, protecting goats, um, doing anti-poaching. Mm. Colleen, in a perfect world here in the U.S., uh, it's hunting season right now, so at least in in uh, in the West. And in a perfect world with wildlife management, it is meant to maintain a healthy balance. So if the deer population has exploded, they issue more hunting tags for deer. And I'm wondering how that sort of thing translates to the Niassa Special Reserve. 
So, um, as I mentioned, you know, the reserve is managed by the Mozambican government and they have very strong regulations in place for lions and leopards, um, which we've helped to develop over the last 20 years here. So for lions, there's an age-based requirement. So only male lions may be taken. They have to be over the age of six years. And then we come in as the Nyasa Carnival Project as independent auditors to be able to assess those lions at the end of the season before they export them. Most of the clients are from the US and um, we've seen with this very strong regulations that the number of lines that have been taken has reduced and they're much older, which means that it's much more sustainable for the population because they've already had cubs um, and, and that means that it's good for the lion population. So I think with all of these things, they are very complex because there's a lot of money involved. Um, there's money that goes to the communities, 20% from the sport hunting. There's money that goes to the government and obviously to the sport hunting operators and anything that that generates that kind of income needs very strong regulations. Um, I think it's possible to make it sustainable, but that it is not something that can just be assumed. So it takes a lot of work, a lot of partnerships, a lot of collaboration. <laughs> yes. And then how much, you know, among the Mozambicans, how much um discord is there or how much understanding or how much uh is the sentiment about coming along with conservation at this point with this level of education that you're providing um i th i think this is a this is a long process you know we have 25 year goals so it's not something that we're going to solve quickly and we don't expect to um we sort of in the process in the next sort of five years of handing over to our incredible mozambican team of which 85 percent are local and as more and more of our team are from here are leading a conservation project and have the power to make the decisions about conservation it becomes more and more of a viable option so conservation doesn't become a war of us and them but becomes about us and about our lions and our future and i think that um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think that we can't have these conversations about conservation when people are hungry or when mm -hmm. people can't are thinking about their next meal or how they're going to get children medical attention. So the first step is always to create an opportunity to get those basic levels um, met. And then we can have conversations about what the future looks like. But I, I'm positive. Um, we have, I can see amazing things happening. We have um, more than 60 lion scholars, which are children from the Asta Reserve that are on secondary school scholarships. And um, we've had, we have three of them now getting university degrees and coming back. One has just been hired by us. Our first girl was hired this year. And um, that's a process, you know, and as we get local conservationists moving up into these decision-making positions, then it starts to become something that everybody is part of, not just something that comes from outside. Mm -hmm. Arlene, you have an expression called, I believe it's Tazva Tazova. I may have butchered that pronunciation, but could Shova, you- Shova, uh... <laughs> Okay, and, and, and what does that mean? So Shova Shova came actually from the community that we worked with for a very long time here in Bamba Village. And Shova Shova means collaboration, but collaboration at a higher level. It basically means 
I push, you pull, or I push, you push. It's collaboration, but collaborative action. It means that everything we do together, we do with responsibilities. So we have what we call, I'm sorry, there's a plane flying overhead, but there's, we have what we call shoulder shoulder projects. It means I have my responsibilities as a conservationist, and you have your responsibilities as a community. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you run seven day safaris for six person groups. Uh, can you tell us what's involved with uh, or, or what what happens at the safari? So about um, 10 years ago, we uh, we work across the whole reserve, but we tended for a concession with a village of 2000 people as our legal partners. And we've taken some time to stop the snaring in the area and to develop a whole lot of performance payments. And in 2018, the community built a beautiful camp called Mpopo Trails Camp. They built it using local artisans. It's built out of grass. It's very beautiful on an island where there are lots of hippos. Um, it's staffed by the village and the money goes to the village. And so when people come for a seven day safari here, they will have a guide and they will have a 58,000 hectare area in which they can design their own trip. Um, we, that's why we don't, you know, you come as a group, you can sleep on the Inselbergs at night, you can um, uh, canoe down the rivers, you can walk with the animals, knowing that every sense that you spend here goes directly back to Mbamba Village and supports conservation and all their efforts for conservation. So it was so exciting to open in 2019 in 2018, 2019, and then of course COVID hit, so we were closed, and then we were closed in 2021, um, and we were closed this year, but next year we're opening again, um, and everyone's gearing up for it. And this is a way to make conservation sustainable, because by bringing people in and making them directly contribute to conservation and interact with the people who live here, they can see what conservation tourism is. This is more than just ecotourism, this is conservation tourism. Yes, and the conservation tourism also probably provides jobs, but I'm wondering what what are the things that the local people w complain most about or what are their biggest concerns? I mean, they're, if they're provided with food through trophy hunting, um, that's a good thing. Creating jobs, that's a good thing, but there must be some real downsides for them. For ecotourism or for, for well, conservation? For maybe maybe both for you know the whole conservation world and and then you know if there is a downside to ecotourism I mean, I think there's always an, an, an ecotourism and sport hunting or trophy hunting are businesses. So wherever they occur, they only become conservation under certain criteria. So they have to have elements of making sure the money goes to communities, hiring locally, making sure the decision making is done by the people who own the land, there's a social justice aspect. So for our case here with Mpopo Trails Camp, this is their land and this is a concession that they own in partnership with us. And so a lot of that falls away because they are part of the decision makers. So I think that the one, the one thing that is really important to remember is that the money that's generated in a place like this from tourism cannot fund all the conservation costs. So some level of philanthropy is needed. So anti-poaching is incredibly expensive. Um, providing medical care, providing education systems, um, uh, opening roads, all that infrastructure 
um, we cannot expect sport hunting or ecotourism to be able to generate enough money to be able to support good conservation. So multiple strands of income are really important. And I think there is an onus on us all over the world to understand that if we want these wilderness places to persist into the future, then we are going to need to support them, whether that's by visiting them or whether that's by donating to them. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, it seems like back when organizations like I'll just pull it out of the air, like the Peace Corps began, you know, they would go into these villages, they would um, dig, you know, create wells and water sources, and then they'd leave and then no one would use the water source. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of appropriate technology um, means that things like conservation and NGOs and things like that are, are always evolving. And I'm curious about what some of the biggest mistakes have been over the years with conservation and then you know where we are now in terms of do we still have a long way to go i mean i think in a very broad scale not talking about niasa specifically because it's a very unusual place where people have never been removed i think that the biggest mistake we ever made was fortress conservation where people were pushed out of wilderness areas for conservation with no choice there was no consent they were just told this was a protected area and were left outside and expected to get on with it and actually most of them became even poorer even though they were given some benefits or whatever happened um, and i think that essentially is the big change that's happened in conservation is a recognition that that wasn't right and social justice really has a very important role to play i think the second is that while tourism uh, of whatever form that we have um, is important and generates can generate a whole lot of money if it's not very carefully worked out very little of that money actually goes to the people who live with the wildlife so they are not incentivized to protect it by three percent of your profit or two percent of your profit or whatever it is it has to be significant and it has to be something that allows them to develop because they have as many aspirations as all of us do. And the third thing I would say is that we have uh, over the years excluded many people from the decision-making tables. So particularly in Africa, Africans have been excluded from the decision-making table. African men, African women, the youth, particularly local women, um, particularly local communities. And until we allow them with the indigenous knowledge, because they have an incredible amount of knowledge to be at the table, then we won't be able to find the solutions that we can get the impact that we want. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Colleen Begg. She is the managing director of the Niasa Carnivore Project. And certainly want to thank you for being on the program. We have a couple minutes left, but I also wanted to thank John Ziegler, Dr. Ziegler, who is the chair of the newly formed conservation committee at the Hogel Zoo in Salt Lake City. Colleen, I'm curious, do you partner with uh, with organizations in the United States? For an example, would you partner in some way with the Hogel Zoo? 
we do partner with the Hogel Zoo and they've been an incredible partner with us over a very long time. I think it's since 2015. Um, they not only support us with donations to be able to do in situ conservation, but it's a much broader relationship in which they help us with our education programs. They help us um, with some of our, uh, many of our other programs, because if you think about a zoo, there's so many people working there, engineers and gardeners and animal specialists and education and teachers. And, and so these are really wonderful. Um, these are really wonderful partners and we value our relationship with the Hogel Zoo. Um, we've just been there with um, Agostino George, who's our conservation director. Um, it was a great visit um, and it was good to be able to talk to everybody and bring them up to date. And for our listeners that want to learn more about your work, where can they go to get additional information? Well, they can go to the local zoo because there is actually some stuff up there, but they can also go to our website, which is www.niasalion.org. Okay, great. Well, uh, Colleen Begg is the Managing Director of the Nyasa Carnivore Project in South Africa, which facilitates peaceful coexistence between individual people, communities of people, lions, other carnivores, conservationists, and all. And uh, we want to thank you so much for joining us this morning on Cool Science Radio. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And we will be right back. You're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with John Wells. Our next guest this morning is Andy Saunders. He is a NASA image restorer who has taken digital scans of 50-year-old analog photos and has applied cutting-edge enhancement techniques to create the highest quality Apollo photographs ever produced. We spoke with Andy last week. Here now is that taped conversation. Please enjoy. Andy Saunders, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you for having me on. Well, we're delighted to have you on. And, you know, there's uh, over the years, I have seen so many photos from the X-15, from the Mercury program, Gemini, and of course, Apollo days. But there's something about these photos that you show some 50 years ago. They're, 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 they're so crisp, the clarity. And I guess that's because I've been looking at copies of copies of copies over the years is that is that basically it sadly we, we all have i mean that's kind of the whole project that i undertook was born out of that frustration uh two things not not being able to see an image of neil armstrong on the moon but also the quality of the whole back catalog of apollo imagery and for that reason um everything's been based on duplicates or copies of duplicates when it was the film the film mm. the, you know an analog world and actually even when we moved into the digital world it's kind of got worse because People will put a copy online and it's very easy to, for someone else to make a copy and a JPEG. And it goes on and on and on. And there's this gradual degradation in the quality of what are, to me, the most important photographs ever taken. And they're being seen by a progressively bigger audience. And that's the nub of it. That's really, really frustrated me. I thought things should get better, not worse. And there was no reason that they would be seen in this way. You know, they use the best cameras, the best lenses, the best photo lab. You know, we should be have always been able to see them in a better state. But that original film, thankfully, that original film that's actually in the cameras on the moon has made it out of this frozen vault that has been in, in this vault in Houston in Texas and has been scanned to an incredibly high resolution. So utilising those, the latest processing techniques, some time and effort, and we can see the Apollo missions like never before. So my two takeaways are, as I said in the beginning, they're very crisp, they're very clear. Uh, the other takeaway was that 
these astronauts are very young. I think I've seen uh, too many interviews of astronauts as elder statesmen. Yeah. And and now we're seeing with all this clarity, uh, we're, we're seeing their youth and we're seeing them very far from the planet. It's really... Uh, it's really fascinating. Yeah, that's something. Uh, another key thing I want to get across in the book is to to reveal the human side. You're right. We don't. We tend not to see the astronauts. Uh, they tend not to take photographs of each other. They just weren't that type. Uh, when we do see them, they're they're an anonymous figure. You know, these puffy white space space suits and a gold visor. So when we can now <laughs> use utilizing this uh, stacking technique on a 16 millimeter film that's used that is better at capturing the inside of the spacecraft. We can now almost step on board those spacecraft, look around, see them on these incredible journeys, the most incredible ever human expeditions. And you're right, the kind of early, mid-30s. Um, and I think when you can see them, and as you say, you just connect with them that much more and appreciate what they were actually doing half a century ago. Now, in July of 1969, of course, was uh, the first man walked on the moon, Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin. Uh, you are not only someone that knows how to restore photos, you're also an historian. And I wanted to ask you a question. There's a story that's been going around for a bit that basically says that Buzz Aldrin was not exactly happy about the fact that he wasn't the first one down the ladder and that, did, that he refused or that he didn't take a picture of, uh, of Neil Armstrong on the moon. Is that true? It's, it's an opinion that I've heard before. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's widely accepted, and I think he's openly accepted the buzz that he would like to have been first. But they were incredibly professional. Uh, they were well-trained with the photography. When I look at the photography tasks that they had, the way they were trained, as I mentioned earlier, they weren't supposed to take photographs of each other. You know, NASA's <clears throat> idea with the photographs, it wasn't to idolize the few people doing the work. It was the work they were doing. Right. Uh, they were test pilots. It was about achieving the landing. It wasn't about taking a photograph and saying, hey, look at me on the moon. They just weren't that type. Um, the other point is, actually, he did take Armstrong's photograph. In fact, the very first photograph taken on Apollo 11 um, was in the command module. Buzz Aldrin unusually was in the middle seat with Armstrong to his left and Collins to his right. And the first photograph is he picked up the camera and the first thing he did is turn to his left and took a photograph of his commander. Neil Armstrong turned to his right and took one of Michael Collins, which in fact is the only photograph, incredibly, of Michael Collins on the entire mission. Uh, that's in the book. But it's just, I saw again, that. They, they, they are just so, they didn't take, tended not to take photographs of each other. Um, back in the lunar module after the moonwalk, Aldrin takes an incredible portrait of Neil Armstrong again. Um, and what's interesting about that is you can hear this in, I've researched all the photographs and in the transcripts, you, they say, look, we've got a spare roll, in effect, of, of a camera roll. We're just going to shoot these up now. Mm -hmm. They had 147 uh, frames left, but they only took seven of each other. And they took 140 of not unnecessary photographs, but of the same type of photographs yeah. out of the window. But in, in effect, spare film, if you like. And again, that's just, that's just how they were. So no, I don't think he purposely avoided uh, okay. Armstrong. It wasn't on his checklist. Um, and in fact, the ones that Armstrong captures of Aldrin weren't necessarily portraits. Uh, mm -hmm. they, were, they were Armstrong doing the work or Armstrong happened to be in shot. No, sorry, yeah. Aldrin happened to be in shot. And as you say, these guys were test pilots and they were really matter of fact and they maybe were not interested in taking pictures of each other. 
But uh, Life Magazine came along and started doing all these big spreads on their families and Cape Canaveral and the testing environments and those sorts of things. So the American public was really looking for the human side of these astronauts. And I think that NASA may have looked at this as an opportunity to help with public support to get Congress to continue to fund their mm -hmm. programs. That's why it's surprising that we don't, we, we haven't, we don't see more of those types of photographs during Apollo. And actually on Apollo 11, the, they only took one camera mm -hmm. and the magazine was actually going to be black and white because the engineers and the scientists preferred black and white. It was high resolution, right. for example. And it was only when it was Duff, who was the head of public affairs, said, look, do you really want a photograph of the first person on the moon on the cover of Life magazine in black and white? At which point they said, okay. And, and, it, and it went as a... Now, as it transpires, there was no photograph of the first man on the moon, colour yeah. or, other, or otherwise. But yeah, it was going to be a black and white magazine. But it was really... It was Gemini 4, actually. So the very early days of, of um, human space flight, it, photography was very low priority. You know, the, pilot, the capsules were too small, the pilots were too busy. And it was only really John Glenn that took it upon himself to buy his own camera from a local drugstore uh, and say, look, people want to see this. We're seeing things that no humans have ever seen. Mm -hmm. Why would we not take a camera? Then it was uh, Wally Shearer on his Mercury mission who introduced the Hasselblad. The, the time that NASA really started to take note and, and put more money into the cameras and into the training was Gemini 4. So that was the first spacewalk. And of Jim McDivitt took some incredible shots of Ed White, a human out in space with a backdrop of Earth. And they were so spectacular. That's when NASA realized, actually, from a PR perspective and gaining continued congressional support, this needs to be higher up on the priority list. So um, Mercury program, Gemini program, Apollo program, there were 35,000 images that were thrown into a pretty big freezer. And they've been in that freezer for the last 50 years. They've given you access to restore them. Maybe you can talk about the restoration process and what was involved. Yeah, I mean, they didn't give me, I, I wasn't lucky enough to make it into the freezer. Yeah, uh, They wouldn't let somebody, would somebody like me into that incredibly important film. So NASA undertook the process of scanning them, and they, but they were just literally raw files. So the scan, as basically a repository of 35,000 scans of, of pieces of film. And they were just sitting there. But you, you can't present a raw scan of a piece of film because it's analog film. You know, it's effectively a digital photograph of a piece of film from the camera. So you need to digitally process it to be able to get the best out of it and to be able to present it. So that's what I did is I went through those 35,000 scans, looked for anything new, anything of interest, images of historical significance, images where, for example, the front cover was just almost a black, a completely black frame. There was just a, a glint of light. So that was one where I thought, well, actually, there might be something of interest in that one. And when I started to pull the detail and stretch the contrast, clearly, wow, there's somebody in that, and this is going to make an amazing portrait. And it's Jim McDivitt, the commander of Apollo 9. But it, it takes a huge amount of kind of manual digital processing, if you like, to get rid of a lot of the artifacts that are created when you do try and push the digital processing on a piece of film. There's only so right. much it can do. So that's more the time-consuming, difficult bit. It's not revealing something in something dark. It's being able to make that look correct. So that's where the time came in. In fact, about 10,000 hours. But I enjoyed every I enjoyed every minute of it because every, you know, I liken it a lot to people who go fishing is that they can sit all day and not get a single bite. But the next day they might catch a shark. 
well, Jim McDivitt was a shark for me. Sure. The Armstrong image was a shark. There are every few, every few hundred, there was something in that that really kept me going. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with NASA image restorer Andy Saunders, who has a just a, a remarkable book. And of course, our listeners are listening on the radio. I, I would just like to describe, there are some side-by-side -side images to show you what Andy started with, which was likened to someone having their picture taken under a tree at night without a flash very dark very very difficult to ascertain what you're looking at and he has restored these so that all of a sudden these eye-popping images of spacewalks and all sorts of different things yeah that kind of shows the amount of um change in them mm -hmm. um, but like i say it, it, i don't want to take a huge amount of credit for being able to get some information out of those files anyone that knows about digital photography these are raw files and as and the huge uh, bit depth the scans so those scans do capture that data the data is there mm -hmm. stretching that data out with software isn't that hard to then like i say find an image the difficulty lies in making that image look right getting rid of all of the artifacts I also did a lot of research about the visual on the moon. So when I'm working on these with, with the, the digital processing techniques are so powerful. I was working on this original film and I was, I was just thinking, oh, these are, they're just absolutely incredible. Am I pushing the processing too hard? So that's where actually doing a lot of research into the visual on the moon, been lucky enough to have some of the Apollo astronauts involved and critique what I've done. Tell me what I need to get across in these images to make sure that it represents what what it's actually like has been invaluable. And in fact, I was probably wasn't pushing the processing hard enough because the visual on the moon is incredibly stark. You know, Charlie Duke talks of, of the black levels. It's a black, the sky is a black, we can't, just can't comprehend on earth. Right. So it's almost like it's got a texture, like a black velvet. Of course. And the, the sunlight is incredibly bright white because it's not, hasn't been filtered through an atmosphere, mm -hmm. but super bright white. So that is enormous contrast. Also with no atmospheric haze, the fingertips are just as crystal clear as mountains that are 15 miles in the distance. So it's incredibly, this incredibly stark, sharp, high contrast visual on the moon that was important to, to get right. And again, you didn't have access to the vault. NASA pulled the ones out of the vault that they wanted to scan. Uh, they gave some to you. Do you suspect there were pictures in the vault that NASA uh, does not want the public to look at or have restored? Not that I know of. I mean, the concept is they were scanning every piece of film from every mission and every magazine. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, going through, I didn't didn't spot something that, you know, maybe there was an sure. image there that's not now there. So no, I, I, don't, I don't believe there's anything in the vaults that uh, they didn't want scanned. Andy Saunders, NASA Image Restorer, we want to thank you for joining us this morning on Cool Science Radio. And we will be right back after these words. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with John Wells. This last interview that we will air was recorded last week before Artemis touched down uh, successfully, as most of us know it did on Sunday. Here is a conversation about the Artemis mission. 
Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Linware Peak. A month ago, NASA launched the Artemis One mission as a major step in its efforts to send humans back to the moon. On Sunday, December 11th, that mission's returning to Earth after checking out how the spacecraft performs many thousands of miles beyond our moon. Here to discuss this historic mission and what comes next is Najud Maranci, who is NASA's Chief of Exploration Mission Planning Office, responsible for the team of engineers and analysts that are designing, developing, and integrating NASA's human spaceflight portfolio beyond the low Earth orbit. Najud, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you for having me. We are delighted to have you on the program. We've been following uh, Artemis for a number of years, uh, and and you know, really interested in this this big first step. What have we learned the last month? Uh, I think what we've really learned is, you know, the purpose of this test flight, especially without putting our astronauts on it, it's an uncrewed test flight, was to validate that our engineering was solid, the design worked, we didn't have any major problems, so that it would be safe for crew. And I think so far we're having a stunning mission that's really, that's what we're learning, is that we we did the work right. So I think those are the major milestones. They've added test objectives. We're learning all sorts of things about the propulsion system, the thermal system. You know, it's really gathering all of the data so that we can go back and double check our work before we put people on. You know, Najud, it seems as though, you know, we've been looking at the moon for a long time, but I'm wondering if any of the images that have come back from Artemis, what has been surprising to you or what what is something new that you've learned or is it just what you expected? So, I mean, the images have been phenomenal. And I, one of the things I talked about much before the mission and I'm so excited to see happen here is with the cameras on the solar arrays, we're really getting the selfies where we can see Orion and the moon together, right? That wasn't something Apollo could do because the cameras were the crew looking out so being able to see Orion with the moon, with the Earth and moon, when we were in distant retrograde orbit, that's what's so phenomenal about it. So it's in some ways exactly what I expected, but in other ways, just exciting to see it. I mean, that flyby, the return flyby on Monday where we could see Orion with the crescent of the moon and the Earth, that one was my surprise of the mission. That was just awesome. Oh, that's excellent. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Najud Maranci, who is NASA's chief of the exploration uh, mission planning office. And Najud, uh, speaking of pictures, was uh, what are maybe some of the top five pictures for you? Uh, were they, was it the backside of the moon? Was it, you know, what sort of things really grabbed your interest? Uh, well, if you start at the beginning, right, it was the launch. There's some pretty incredible launch photos of, you know, SLS on the pad and taking off. There's some uh, cameras looking aft from um, the rocket, so you could actually see the pad fall away behind it. So that's a video more than a picture. But that was an amazing start. Um, and then it was really Earth departure from Orion and seeing the Earth get smaller right there on the first day. Um, and then it has been the close flyby passes and the selfies with um, Orion on the return flyby. And then the other really one I was excited to see was when Orion was at the furthest point from Earth on the far side of the distant retrograde orbit, and we could actually see the moon pass in front of Earth. So that was a pretty phenomenal set of imagery as well. So um, we have more to come because we'll see the landing photos hopefully on Sunday and the parachutes opening. And I think those are going to be the next uh, major images that grab our attention. Looking forward to a successful splashdown. Is that right? What, what are some of the considerations? 
Uh, so I think there's, um, so really targeting the splashdown happened on Monday. So, you know, you're coming in whether the weather's good or not, but if um, the weather does look great, so I think it, it's likely we're in the nominal splashdown zone, but if for some reason uh, it's not, Orion can actually land uprange to shorten the entry and that way, you know, sort of avoid the weather targeting. So um, there's a few uh, decisions that would have to be made right, at, uh, right near the end to make sure you avoid any bad weather, but I think everything's looking good. Charlie Precourt, who is an astronaut who has six or 700 hours uh, in space with the space shuttles, also the Northrop Grumman executive who's responsible for the solid fuel boosters uh, here in Utah. And uh, this is the first time that the pairing of the solid fuel and the liquid fuel came together in the SLS launch. Uh, what sort of things did we learn about that uh, particular test? You know, I think that the rocket performed amazingly well. And um, from what I heard, um, the insertion into the target where uh, SLS drops off Orion was just a couple miles off target. And when you're talking about, you know, thousands of miles and going 24,000 miles per hour, that's like, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. So it's performed so well. So I think that's really what we learned is that everything performed to expectations. And that was certainly the loudest rocket launch we've had at Kennedy Space Center um, in years. <laughs> Um, yes. that's been phenomenal. <laughs> There's just something about a loud blast that kind of excites people, right? <laughs> it's it's a real rocket taking off with those solids and five liquid engines all going at the same, four liquid engines all going at the same time. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, with your career trajectory, did you imagine yourself being here? Can you talk a little bit about where you came from and, and you know, your position now? Yeah, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, graduated University of Washington. Um, I always wanted to work human space flight, which is why I intentionally tried and succeeded in getting the job at the Johnson Space Center when I graduated. So I started on the space station. And when I graduated, we weren't talking about going to the moon. We were building the space station, we were flying the shuttle, and we were doing a lot of amazing things, but I always wanted to do lunar work like the Apollo mission. So I, it's amazing that it all worked out and I get to be doing it right now at this time and we're actually back at the moon. What is the next step for Artemis? The next step for Artemis is really the Artemis II mission, which is our flight test. Um, it's the first flight with crew. So we will have four crew on the next flight one of which will be a Canadian astronaut. Um, so we're already an international program and project. Um, and that flight will demonstrate all of the life support systems, the crew exercise, the food, and the atmospheric control systems. All of those things will be demonstrated with crew. And then things really start to accelerate quickly as we intend to land on the moon on the next mission. So there's a lot going on in parallel, you know, with Orion's development, the human landing system and gateway. So there is a lot of exciting things about to happen, but the next step is our crewed flight. Najid, I'm wondering, you know, it makes a lot of sense for trained astronauts with a lot of experience to go to the moon, but there's more and more talk about, you know, us regular folks out there, civilians out there, um, you know, engaging in more and more space travel. What are you thinking about that in terms of going to the moon? It seems like that would be the the next frontier. I mean, I think it's really exciting. Um, the only thing better than one rocket is two rockets. So the more rockets, the more spacecraft we have, the better. Um, it is very challenging to go to space. I mean, going to the low Earth orbit is an incredible challenge and an incredible risk. Going to the moon is an order of magnitude larger. 
So I think, you know, it's baby steps, right? We're starting to see non-professional astronauts in low Earth orbit, which is really amazing and very cool to start having that happen, um, sort of opening up the access. Uh, the governments are pushing out to the moon, which is much harder and takes a lot more resources. Eventually, maybe we'll see private astronauts out there too. So there's a lot going on and I mean, the more the better. So we have the mission to the moon. Uh, we may uh, be going to Mars one day, I believe we will. And there's some other missions as well. Maybe you can uh, just talk a little bit about the configurability of the space launch system because it can be configured for different missions. Yeah, the space launch system and as well as Orion, really they were designed with the intention of being adaptable. So whether you know we're trying to launch for space launch system in particular, it's Orion um, on this flight on future versions, it'll be Orion plus a large cargo element. A piece of gateway will launch with Orion and Orion will tug it out to orbit and start building the gateway out in lunar orbit. But SLS could also be used to launch very large cargo elements. Um, because when we start going out to the moon and when you, especially when you talk about Mars, you need just a lot of stuff. And it is very expensive to get it out there because of the speeds and the propellant needed. So big rockets, a lot of stuff, that's really what SLS was designed for. And same thing with Orion, it's called the multi-purpose crew vehicle is the official program name. And that's because it can fly a variety of orbits. It can do a variety of missions. We can use it in a variety of ways. The first three missions for Orion are all completely different orbits, which is a really good example of that. You know, we can do a lot of different things with these systems and that's what's opening up the flexibility so that, you know, whatever we find on the moon, whatever we want to do in the future, we have the pieces to do it. Yeah. Najud, I can just see the excitement all over your face and I can I can hear it in your voice. And anytime we talk to someone from NASA or anyone involved in space exploration, it just seems to me that everyone is so excited. And I'm wondering how um, you share that excitement and how you want, you know, people that you talk to that are outside of of space exploration to learn about it and to get excited about it as you are. Uh, you know, I think that's it's first off, space is just exciting in general. So it's easy to get people excited about it and join and come along with the ride, see what Orion's doing. So I think we're in that mode where, you know, just exposing people to it gets them excited. And the more we can actually, I mean, I like to just break it down and explain things in, you know, more common terms so that people can really understand what's going on. So, and I think that helps. So if you have a sense of understanding is what's really important. Najud Maranci is the chief of the Exploration Mission Planning Office. We wish you and your team continued success. We'll be watching with you on Sunday. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Such a fascinating interview and to be part of the excitement that goes on at NASA. Boy, you, any time we talk to someone at NASA, they are just so excited about what they do. That's an enviable position to be in, I think, <laughs> loving your job that much. Kind of like we yeah. love our job, right, John? Oh, we do love our job. And uh, we spoke to Mark Vandehei yesterday. We taped a conversation with him that we will uh, play for all of you on our December 29 show. But Mark was someone we spoke to in August uh, 2021, when he was aboard the International Space Station, traveling at 17,500 miles an hour, about 270 miles above the planet. 
and we wanted to catch up with him because, uh, well, we had some stuff to talk to him about, right, Lynn? <laughs> we did. We did. Mostly, what does it feel like to not be able to do a backflip in midair, you know, on command? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he was he was incredible. The uh, 355 days in space, the American record for number of days in space on a single mission at the International Space Station, came back with two Russian cosmonauts and, you know, has a lot of stories to tell, including what is it like to live back here where we're heavy. Yeah, and when he hitched a ride on Soyuz uh, to come back here, about a week before, maybe two weeks before, Russia had invaded the Ukraine. And now he's in a Soyuz spacecraft. He's going to be landing in Russia. He's with a couple of cosmonauts. We asked him if they talked about what was going on in world events. And he said, yeah, we did. Yeah, so look forward to that conversation here on Cool Science Radio. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to KPCW Park City. 